calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover. And you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Singularity by Bill DeSmet. Copyright 2004 by William H. DeSmet. All rights reserved. Chapter 21 Raise the Titanic. Galena felt flush with pride and anticipation, so excited that she hardly minded pulling the morning shift for the hopelessly hungover Kamarov. Today was the day. Finally, Arkady Grigorievich had given the go-ahead for capture. Somehow, Arkady Grigorievich always seemed to know the opportune time for initiating the next step in this cascade of complex operations. What an honor to be working on this project with him. Really, he made one feel again as in the old Soviet Union. Hardships and privations, yes, though not on Rusalka, of course, but with them a conviction that it was all worthwhile, a conviction that imbued the simple business of life and work with a heroic quality so sadly lacking in post-Soviet Russia. And really, wasn't this magnificent antipode project an echo of those grim, glorious times when, led by dread Stalin, Russia had stood alone at the hinge point of history, and fought back against another darkness threatening to engulf the world? Russia had saved all of humanity then, had saved the future itself from the horrors of fascism at Stalingrad, and now, in the hours to come, they would do so once again. Her own generation, Stalingrad, Galina smiled at the monumental incongruity of the idea, and she had been chosen to serve. She blinked back sudden tears, and looked again at the readouts. The lights were still green, but flashing faster, almost turnover time. A glance at the chronometer confirmed it. 10.46 a.m. Bordelac was approaching its Azores apogee. Apogee indeed. An apogee was the point in an object's orbit where it was furthest away from the Earth. How could one apply the same word to an object that was orbiting entirely within the Earth, tunneling endlessly round and round, miles below the surface? Still, what else to call these highest points in Vortilac's subterranean trajectory, grazing the underside of the crust at twenty-degree intervals, stitching an invisible, sinuous ring around the planet? When this was all over, they would have to sit down and work out some new terminology. 
The gravitometer was now tracking Vortilac's brief transit of the capture chamber, some 200 kilometers northwest and 3,000 meters down. Here, at the highest point in its arc, Vortilac moved at its slowest, spending whole milliseconds within the cage before hurtling down again along its return path into the bowels of the earth. Round and round and round it goes, but while it is here, a chime rang out. 10.47 a.m. Vyshaya Tochka. Turnover. The stuttering displays changed from green to red. Miles under the sea, Antipode Station's computers stepped through the polarity reversal sequence one last time, preparing to impart one more small delta V to the visitor from outer space now lurking in the Earth's interior. The North Polar Electromagnetic Hemisphere shut down its opposite-charged counterpart came online. In a single instantaneous repulsor burst, it discharged all the energy stored over the past twelve hours, speeding Vortilak on its way with one last push. And that should do it, as her instruments were even now confirming. One more half-day wait, and then for Galena it would be... What was the American expression? Showtime. She yawned. No sleep last night. The party had continued till all hours. And why not? Why not welcome back the sun on this first morning of a world redeemed, reborn? She smiled, remembering the festivities, remembering dear sweet John, who could hardly have guessed what it was they were truly celebrating, strumming a borrowed guitar and leading them in ballads from the great fatherland war, from Stalingrad itself. Dark night, only the bullets whistling over the step. She hummed the old tune as she hit the power-down button. How long it had taken the dedicated crew and research staff of Rusalka to bring this dazzling success within reach. Four years just to find the location of the North Atlantic apogee. Studies of the throw-down pattern of trees at the Tunguska impact site could yield only an approximate angle of entry at best. In the end... It had taken Rusalka's meticulous seismographic survey of the undersea target area to finally detect those faint, twice-daily tremors in the ocean bed that betrayed Vortilak's subterranean passage. Then came the construction work itself. Just another undersea mining operation, as far as the world at large knew. But what an operation! Forty months to excavate the main antipode chamber— using remote operating and autonomous underwater vehicles to carve 10 billion metric tons of rock out of the heart of an undersea mountaintop and install the nuclear generators that powered the station's enormous superconducting electromagnetic arrays. Ten more months for the ROVs and AUVs to drill shafts for the capture mohole and the kilometers-long braking train. All that at crushing depths thousands of meters down, never could have been done at all without Grecian Enterprise's vast resources and expertise in artificial intelligence and telemediated systems. Even so, the automated workforce had required constant on-site supervision in the main bathyscaph. Galena shivered. If they succeeded here tonight, and they must, please God, they must, such a trip to the sunless deeps of the Newfoundland Basin awaited her as well. And then, 
the antipode installation complete, three more years of electromagnetic pushing and pulling on Vordelac, three years of exertion to slowly change the orbit of an object massing five and a half billion metric tons. There was, of course, no electromagnet on Earth powerful enough to raise the beast, its weight the equivalent of 15,000 Empire State Buildings against the force of gravity. Not directly, at least. Instead, they had tricked Vordelac into doing most of the work itself, by means of resonance. Resonance was a wonderful thing, enabling micro-forces to yield macro-results. Soldiers march in step across a bridge, and, if the cadence of their footfalls happens to match the span's natural resonance frequency, the whole structure begins to sway back and forth. Small pushes on a child's swing, delivered one after another at just the right time, and soon the little passenger is sailing high into the air, squealing with glee. Her eyesight blurred again momentarily. To enjoy such simple things with a child of one's own, but fate had ruled that hers was to be a sterner joy, to secure a future for all the children of the world. If only there was still time. As it was, they had almost been too late. Another few years of orbital decay, and Vordelac would have burrowed down to depths beyond the reach of their best technology. She knew all too well the worst-case scenario that would then have ensued. Sasha's multimedia mission briefings had been only too graphic. Orbital degradation would increase exponentially as Vortilac spent more and more of its time in the denser layers of magma further down. As it slowed, it would absorb more material on each circuit through the Earth. That, in turn, would slow it still further and increase its capture cross-section still more in a fiendish feedback loop, until at last it came to rest at the core. Then its ghoulish feast would begin in earnest. Estimates varied as to when the end would come. Two years? Five? In a decade at most, the earth would have been utterly consumed by the beast at its heart. And what then? No more autumn forests of pensive birch and stately pine, or little girls to wander through them in search of secret glades. No more rushing springtime brooks with small boys fishing alongside their papas on the banks. Gone. All gone in the final gravitational cataclysm, as the whole earth, together with all its inhabitants, all its children, collapsed down into a sphere three centimeters wide and disappeared forever behind its own Schwarzschild radius wrapping its event horizon about itself. From then until the end of time, the lonely moon, sole mourner and funerary candle for a once-living world, would circle a mathematical point with the mass of the earth, a mere space-time distortion moving in its usurped orbit around the sun, sailing ever onward through the eternal night. Galena shuddered again in the perfect climate conditioning of Rusalka's secret lab. But, glory to God, they had been in time. By means of electromagnetic pulses timed to resonate precisely with its orbit, they had gradually increased Vortilac's velocity, and with that its height at apogee. At first, 
the vampire had been too deep to be attracted or repulsed by the main electromagnetic arrays within antipode proper. But this too had been foreseen. A kilometers deep mohole had been bored down through the base of the mountain housing antipode station. Smaller, but almost equally powerful electromagnets were then lowered into the shaft, coming at last within grappling distance of Vordelac. Over the next 33 months, these satellite arrays had been gradually raised back up the mohole, dragging the vampire along behind them, coaxing it ever closer to the containment chamber at the top of the shaft. The operation would have gone much quicker, of course, if only they had been able to erect a twinned antipode on the Tunguska impact site itself. She pictured two stations on opposite sides of the earth, bouncing Vertilac back and forth between them like some grotesque medicine ball. But no, impossible. The Siberian apogee had been a good eight kilometers below the surface when they'd started, and trying to sink a mohole down to reach it would have destabilized the permafrost. Any facility that tried such a trick would sink beneath a quicksand lake of its own creation. Not to mention that the Tunguska site was hardly an ideal locale, given Arkady Grigorievich's penchant for secrecy. Ever since the fall of communism, hordes of astrophysical researchers had taken to descending on it every other summer. In fact, the latest joint Tomsk-Bologna expedition had been there until this past week, once again scouring the great southern swamp for the remnants of a meteorite that had never existed. Her heart went out to her fellow scientists, laboring under a misconception now nearly a century old. Well, and who could blame them? The truth was so fantastic, she had scarcely credited it herself at first. She recalled the long-ago evening she had first learned of it, that wintry January evening in 1986, when Sasha had announced he was returning to Bratsk to take up an old research interest, an interest recently rekindled by an interview he had been summoned to somewhere in central Moscow. Of the mysterious interview itself, he would say nothing, only that it had been official. But he could not stop talking about the ideas it had sparked in him. Galya, he had said, barely able to contain his excitement, it would be the greatest single find in the history of cosmology. Will be, better to say. If only I could find the support. Someone will. Someone must. Of that I am certain. For it has already happened. If only it will be me. And with this strange preamble, he had gone on to tell her of stranger things yet. Of a message from out of time. From the future. Of a tiny knot in the fabric of space, of a thing that was old before the stars were born, smaller than an atom, heavier than a mountain, the thing that had devastated Tunguska so long ago. She barely heard him, struggling as she was with her own feelings of devastation. For it had become clear as he spoke that nowhere in his plans was there a place for her. It will be difficult, Galia, he had said possibly dangerous as well. It is better that you remain here in Moscow, complete your doctorate. Have faith, I will return for you. And return he had, though only after she had long since despaired of ever seeing him again, after the trickle of correspondence had dried up altogether, 
after her increasingly frantic inquiries had been met with ever stonier official silence, after he had disappeared without trace into that still, white, Siberian emptiness that had claimed so many others. He had returned for her, but not as she had hoped. In the spring of 1992, he had returned to recruit her for the project. He had found the support for his research, he said. In a way, he had become the support. His key role in the new Grecian Enterprises Combinat permitted him to fund certain pet projects of his own. On a small scale at first, true, but that would soon change once results were forthcoming. None of it seemed to make him happy. If anything, beneath the business-like exterior, he seemed haggard, troubled, and distant somehow, as though the better part of him had receded behind some event horizon of his own. Only when he spoke of the project itself did embers of the old enthusiasm, the old Sasha, glow briefly amid the ashes. More than anything, it was a hope that somewhere within the stranger he had become there still lived the man she had loved that moved her to join him. Long after that hope had died, love still kept her at her post. Love, not for a man, but for the children of the world, a world she was working to save, a world that stood in desperate need of saving. For it was true, all of it. Having obliterated the heartlands of the stony Tunguska, Sasha's primordial black hole had not tunneled through the earth and out the other side. It had taken up an elliptical orbit within the lithosphere, an 80-minute orbit, with its 18 apogees advancing completely around the globe once every 24 hours, revisiting Tunguska and the waters of the Azores, and even less accessible places again and again, as it slowly consumed the Earth's very substance. It had become Vortilak, gnawing in secret at the flesh of the world. If only an expedition had been dispatched to the impact site immediately, they could at least have known. Even the rudimentary magnetometers of the time, no, even a child's compass, would have fluctuated wildly every twelve hours, betraying the presence of the fiercely charged Vortilak as it returned nearly to the surface at its Tunguskan apogee. But Tsarist Russia had been preoccupied with imminent war and revolution. No expedition had been sent. By the time the new Soviet government sent Kulik and his party to the epicenter for a proper geomagnetic survey, twenty years had passed, years in which Vortilak had slowly receded deeper into the earth as its orbit gradually decayed, descending almost beyond the range of the second expedition's primitive instruments. All Kulik managed to capture in 1928 were a few feeble magnetic anomalies. Elsewhere in the world, the chances of detection were even slimmer. Most of the apogees occurred in trackless ocean or inaccessible wasteland. The North Atlantic site, the point where, had it been in the cards, Vortilak would have left Earth forever on its original trajectory, was actually more propitious than most. Even here, though, and even at the outset, the local maximum in Vortilak's orbit had only brought it within twenty meters of the surface. That was still too deep to have much effect on North Atlantic shipping, 
other than to play havoc with the bridge compass of the occasional passing vessel. As it submerged ever deeper over the years, Bordelac may have been responsible for one or more unexplained World War I U-boat disasters, but otherwise it had spiraled slowly down beyond the ken of man, sinking unnoticed into the sunless abyss. And leaving behind so little evidence of its passing that when the Americans A. A. Jackson and M. P. Ryan proposed their primordial black hole explanation for Tunguska in nineteen seventy three, they were made a laughing stock. Even the otherwise splendid American television series Cosmos had the astronomer Carl Sagan joining in the chorus of derision. It was doubtless this air of the ridiculous still clinging to the PBH collision hypothesis three decades after its proposal that drove Arkady Grigorievich to keep the Antipode project under wraps, at least until the cat was safely in the sack. Galina reddened then, remembering her vodka-induced gaffe at last night's banquet. Arkady Grigorievich had been very angry with her. She had read it in his eyes. But... While she could understand Chairman Grecian's insistence on cloaking his great humanitarian effort in such secrecy, she could not agree. The fruits of this magnificent achievement must belong to the whole world. Soon they would. Not only would cosmologists have an opportunity to study at close hand that dream of twentieth-century physics, a universe in the laboratory, but in time, networks of undersea cables would carry a stream of clean, inexhaustible power to all the peoples of the globe. Her workstation's power-down cycle had long since completed. Galina shook herself and rose to leave. As she climbed the rungs to Rusalka's bridge deck, she was already looking ahead to what the next twelve hours would bring. Just as no force on Earth, not even Antipode Station's giant superconducting electromagnets, could have raised the black hole's Brobdingnangian bulk. So, too, none had the power to hold it in place against the pull of Earth's gravity. But Galena, sorceress of magnetohydrodynamic enchantments, had one more trick in store for Vordelac. In just twelve hours, she would sap the vampire's own diabolical strength to weave her incorporeal web. Listening to Singularity by Bill DeSmet.